Hello everyone, I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. You have picked a fabulous episode to start off on. And if you are a regular listener, welcome back. Today's episode is unlike anything we've covered before. But you guys can trust us when we say this story is so much scarier than people give it credit for. You are absolutely right. So we usually cover things like murders, the occasional haunting, and even a cryptid here and there. But today... We are covering something that was the result of sheer human error and ended in an absolute nightmare. We are covering the 1919 Boston Molasses Disaster, also known as the Great Molasses Flood. And some of you listening are probably thinking, it's molasses, how bad could this get? Well friends, prepare to learn. Today we're going to be going over what happened that fateful day in January that resulted in the loss of 21 lives amongst another 150 injuries. We'll be sharing both witness and survivor accounts as well. We're also going to be talking about why this happened as well as how this changed the way we see things like workplace liability. This is truly a real-life horror story and we can't wait to share it with you. Because honestly, the majority of people hear this and they kind of just like scoff at it. We're here to show you that this wasn't just a small flood that people somehow couldn't outrun. This was pure devastation. If you have claustrophobia or a fear of drowning, you're probably going to absolutely hate this episode. There's a specific part of the episode that really got me, and I'm going to point it out when we get to it, but I heard about this here and there, and I knew it was destructive and that people died, but I never really like stopped to think about it, and after learning about it, I genuinely can't even begin to imagine how horrifying this would have been to witness firsthand. It sounds so comical at first. You picture it kind of something like from an animated kids movie, but boy does it get real bad real quick. If you've ever made homemade toffee and accidentally got some on you while it's boiling, you know it's terrible. Now picture that on an unimaginably large scale, like a volcano erupting. Alright, so let's get into the Boston Molasses Disaster of 1919. We really want to get right into the flood itself, but before we can do that, we want to talk a little bit about the area and talk about why 2.3 million liters of molasses was there in the first place. The tank was located along the Boston waterfront on Commercial Street. It was owned by the Purity Distilling Company, which was a subsidiary of United States Industrial Alcohol, or USIA for short. At the time, industrial alcohol was incredibly profitable, it had been heavily used in World War I for making dynamite and other explosives, amongst a few other things. In order to get this industrial alcohol, they would require large amounts of molasses, which was allowed to sit and ferment. After the war, the company focused more on the production of grain alcohol until Prohibition began in 1920. Either way, the company continued to produce large quantities of fermented molasses that was stored in large metal tanks. This particular tank was built in 1915. It was over 50 feet high and 90 feet in diameter. It was large enough to hold up to 2.5 million gallons, which for the record is 9.5 million liters. And for context, just so you can wrap your mind around that, one Olympic-sized swimming pool, when full, is around 2.5 million liters. That's absolutely unreal. Like, it's almost hard to picture the sheer size of this thing. While it does seem like a lot, the tank had only ever been at full capacity four times, and it was only ever filled 29 times before it blew. The scary thing was that there were multiple reports of leaks here and there, as well as rumbling sounds not long before the flood took place. The tank itself was built very quickly, which resulted in quite a few corners being cut. 
Unfortunately, this would be one of the main causes of this disaster. We'll be talking in detail about that later, and warning, it's probably going to make you pretty mad. Two days prior to the flood, a ship had arrived from Puerto Rico with 2.3 million gallons of molasses on board. This would be the last time that the tank was filled. Alright, so let's get into the day of the disaster itself. It was around 12.40pm on January 15th. The waterfront was incredibly busy with workers all around. The day up until that point had been pretty uneventful. The temperature had hit 4 degrees Celsius that day, which was a welcome break from the much colder days that Boston had seen in the days prior. Unfortunately, when that newest shipment of molasses was transferred to the tank, there was a huge difference in temperature between it and the molasses that was already sitting there. We're going to talk more about the actual construction of the tank and why it was essentially doomed from the start. It was already quite brittle at this point and the change in temperature was more than it could handle. The calm on the waterfront was broken by the sound of what was later described by witnesses as a large metallic roar. The Boston Post would later write, A rumble, a hiss, some say a boom and a swish, and the wave of molasses swept out. It's very uh, Dr. Zeus sounding. Very, very poetic. Yes, very like um, nursery rhyme or something. Witnesses reported originally thinking it was the sound of the elevated train that was nearby. The ground beneath them also began to rumble. For anyone standing close, it was too late. The tank ripped open, causing all 2.3 million gallons of molasses to pour out. This is when this story enters nightmare territory. Before anyone could figure out what had happened, the wave began to hit. And the thing about this wave of molasses is that it was more often described as a wall. It was also reported to be as tall as 40 feet by some sources. I can't even imagine, you know, maybe walking down the street doing your shopping and you just look up and there's this brown wall creeping to well and as we'll find out not really creeping towards you but coming at you and that's the thing too is like the brain probably can't comprehend no. that because if it was water it'd be like oh that's a wave of water yeah but that's when, a tsunami coming exactly we're by the ocean we're that by makes the sense. port it makes but sense. this is it's like what the hell is this stuff oh my god what people don't realize is that due to the warmer temperature that day, the molasses was able to move much faster than people think it would. The wall came towards the people of Commercial Street at a whopping 35 miles an hour, and that's almost 60 kilometers an hour for our fellow Canadians. That's absolutely horrifying. So it covered people, animals, buildings, everything. It was even strong enough to destroy the solid steel supports that held the nearby elevated train platform. It obliterated everything in its path. Remember, this is not water. Water would have been bad enough, but the viscosity and the density of the molasses was enough to exert over 2,000 pounds of pressure per square foot, which is almost twice that of atmospheric pressure. Buildings were described as breaking as if they were made of pasteboard. Numerous people were thrown from wagons and vehicles. It's reported that 12 horses were killed that day, along with numerous other animals. It almost, it, it comes off as almost like, um like a, a villain from a superhero movie, like, ha let's let the molasses go across the top. Like, it's like a Powerpuff Girls Because it's so situation. hard to fathom that this would happen, and I think that's why I struggled with this so much, because, like, you hear about it. Yes. And, like I said, it sounds so comical, Yeah, it absolutely it is not comical. Because, again, comical. it doesn't sound like a real thing that happens, and we're gonna get into this, you guys, and, like, when we say this is terrifying, like... Just Awful. wait, just wait. Not the way you want to go, no. for sure. One witness reported, 
I was at a loss to know what it was at first, thinking it might be mud, but when I turned my head, I saw the molasses tank plunge out in the direction of the elevated structure which buckled over. He also said, The next second, a wave of molasses swept up the street in my direction, but I beat it out in the race, for I rushed up a side street and escaped except for my uniform, hat, and shoes, being literally covered in the sticky substance. He ran to the nearest phone and called for help. He then joined the large team of people already attempting to rescue those trapped in the mess. Something else to consider is that the wave wasn't just made up of molasses. It was now filled with metal shards from the tank, as well as everything that it took with it. Cars, bodies, debris, and more. That's one of the biggest things to remember here. It didn't just flood around the buildings. It destroyed pretty much everything that stood in its way. It knocked houses off their foundation and completely crushed others. Cars were thrown into the harbor. After the wave, the molasses began to recede and the damage became clear. An area of half a mile was covered and rescue efforts were immediate. Police and firefighters were on scene almost immediately. The USS Nantucket was docked nearby and over a hundred sailors were also able to assist. The press was also on the scene quite quickly, which at the time was probably not the most helpful thing, but it leaves us with a lot of reports on how people were feeling after this. The Boston Post reported, Here and there struggled a form. Whether it was animal or human being was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval, a thrashing abound in the sticky mass showed where any life was. Horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, suffered likewise. Absolutely horrifying. So, once the initial blast was over, a large wave continued to pour through the streets. And at this point, the molasses began to cool down and it was incredibly difficult to walk through. Many of the reports compare it to quicksand. And that's where this gets really terrifying when you think about it. The majority of the people who died that day died as a result of drowning. Just, like, take a second to think. I, I, I can't. How horrible it would be to drown in water. And then think about how much worse it would be if it was thick, gooey molasses. And that's the thing. You can't just come up for air and get it out. Like, you can't cough this stuff out. No. Once it's in your nose and your mouth, it's, it's incredibly difficult to get it out. And that's what got me and that's what creeped me out was the idea of drowning in molasses is just beyond horrifying, especially the idea of having it in your nose. Well, and we'll get into it when we start talking about the victims, but you wouldn't even know what hit you no. some of the time. You would just be suddenly surrounded in molasses, but you wouldn't even know. No. Like, you would just be covered. Not only that, but a lot of reports also described it as basically a giant glue trap. Once you were stuck, you were stuck. The Boston Post would later report about this, saying, There was no escape from the wave. Caught, human being and animal alike could not flee. Running in it was impossible. Snared in its flood was to be stifled. Once it smeared ahead, human or animal, there was no coughing off the sticky mass. To attempt to wipe it with hands was to make it worse. Most of those who died, died from suffocation. It plugged nostrils almost airtight. That's awful. I I mean, it's bad enough when you have a shitty flu or a shitty cold and you yeah. can't. And now, next time you have a cold, consider that it could be molasses. Yeah, just be grateful that it's not molasses. Oh my god. The actual flood only lasted about five minutes. The level of destruction that it left behind is almost difficult to imagine. 
Many of the victims that day were workers. However, sadly, two of the first that were killed were children. Both Pascal Iantoska and Maria Distasio were collecting firewood near the tank when it blew. They were on their lunch break from school, and this was a common activity for them. They were both only 10 years old. Tragically, Pascal's father saw the whole thing from their apartment window. He watched his son vanish into the molasses and ran downstairs hoping to save him. Unfortunately, it was too late. His body was found in the rubble near the tank along with Maria. Her brother Antonio was with her when the flood happened. He stated that as the tank blew, he saw his sister run towards it. He ran the other way in an effort to save himself, but the molasses was already up to his knees and it knocked him down. I can't even imagine the survivor's guilt that they, they must have felt it, seeing it just happen awful. like that. Now, one of the most well-known rescues that happened that day was at the Engine 31 Firehouse. A group of men were gathered together having lunch and enjoying a card game. They were found trapped in a molasses-flooded room on the first floor after it collapsed on top of them. Rescue workers spent hours removing the debris and they were able to save all but one of the firefighters. One of them, a man named George Leahy, had been unable to hold himself up and tragically drowned in the room. The 38-year-old was getting ready to take a nap and he was found at the foot of the sliding pole at the station. Something to keep in mind was that this happened around lunchtime. Many of the people in the area were workers who would often eat their lunch and then nap until they had to go back to work. This was a part of the day when people were relatively relaxed. 65-year-old Bridget Claherty was killed when her home collapsed on top of her. She had been spending the day with her sons and her daughter. Her son Stephen is considered by many to be a victim of the flood, despite the fact that he did not die until years later. After the death of his mother, he was placed in a psychiatric institution where he would later pass away. His family argued that his death was the result of the trauma that he suffered that day. A woman named Mary Musco, who lived nearby, told the Boston Globe that she watched the Claherty house fly into the air. She reported, I knew there were people in the house, and I ran into the street and called for help. She also told them, Soon, sailors and other people came running, and I went back into my own house. I was terribly frightened, and I think I became hysterical. It was awful. I knew those people were killed, and I saw people running every way, all covered in molasses. They were hollering and crying. Just awful. Nearby, a man named Robert Burnett was eating with his family. They actually had a view of the elevated train, and they were used to hearing the noise it made when it passed. He reported hearing a strong rumbling sound. He told the Boston Post, I thought it was an elevated train until I heard a swish as if a wind was rushing. Then it became dark. I looked out the window and saw this great black wave coming. It didn't rush. It rolled slowly. It seemed like the side of a mountain falling into space. Of course it came quickly, but we all had a chance to jump and run before the windows began to crack. Then it poured molasses. Damn. I... It's like, it genuinely like something from a disaster movie. It reminds me of The Blob. Yes. That was what I was thinking yes. this whole time. Was People the blob running away screaming. And it's and... almost like it's alive and it's coming after them and yes. it's breaking into their houses. But there's something he says. It seemed like the side of a mountain falling into space. Yes. Because, again, like you said before, I think you would see it. And your body would almost stop and be like, what the fuck is that? Because you're not going to think, oh, it's a wave of molasses. Because no. molasses doesn't come in fucking waves. No, and certainly not like 2.5 million gallons of it. Exactly. Robert and his family had nowhere to go, and their only option was to either run out into the street and face the molasses, 
or to climb onto their roof and hope that the building didn't collapse. He said that they initially ran down the hall of their building, but when they opened the door, they saw that the molasses had reached the top of the 14-step flight of stairs. They then climbed to the roof where they were luckily saved later. Some of the victims were taken to nearby relief hospitals in an effort to save their lives. Among them was 64-year-old Peter Francis. He worked nearby as a blacksmith on the North End Paving Yard. He made it to the hospital where he was read his final rites before passing away. He was well known in the community and had worked for the city for nearly 20 years. Peter had also been a prominent member of his church. He left behind a wife and nine adult children. Newspapers reported stretcher after stretcher arriving in hospitals and relief centers nearby. It is said that many of the victims were so covered that it was hard to tell their gender and their age, let alone their identity. It must have been so chaotic. Ugh. Soon after, panicked family members began to arrive hoping to hear good news about their loved ones. Many of those who were not lucky enough to get good news were said to have been so hysterical that they needed medical attention themselves. I can see it because how do you, you know... As tragic as any mass death is for whatever reason, whether it's a disaster or, you know, like a mass shooting that we see or whatever, how do you wrap your mind? It's one thing to be like, okay, there's a human being responsible for this. You know, someone came in and, mm -hmm. and shot or whatever, or someone caused an explosion. But how does a doctor explain to you, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am, your family member died because they choked to death on molasses? And that's, again, I, I keep, like, I, I picture this as almost a living entity because yes. it's just so big and vicious and it just took out everything. Yes. When we mentioned earlier how genuinely scary this whole thing was, we mean it. That was one of the reasons why we wanted to tell this story. Time and time again, when it's mentioned, it's almost laughed at a little bit because it's difficult to actually fathom something like this actually it, It's to truly you. a nightmare. Another blacksmith, 69-year-old John Sieberlich, was known to enjoy an afternoon nap in his office. He was rescued from the debris but passed away at a relief hospital shortly after. The North End Paving Yard was hit hard, and quite a few of the victims that day were found in the area. Among them was also 44-year-old Patrick Breen and 43-year-old John Callahan. Unfortunately, not much is known about either of them. Another victim that we don't know a lot about is 46-year-old James McMillan. He was a foreman for the Bay State Express and was killed also while he was at work. That's something important to point out. We really did want to talk about the victims as much as we could. This is one of those events where, while quite a few people know of the story, the victims kind of get forgotten over time. It's true. Even while researching this, I very quickly noticed that the majority of sources don't even bring up their names at all. It was really important to me that we shared the stories and at least a little bit about who they were because at the end of the day, they mattered and their memory should live on. Like, it sounds cliche, but I, I legitimately mean that. Some of them we have more information about than others, but I felt it was important to at least share their names. Yeah, absolutely. Irish-born Thomas Noonan had moved to Charleston in 1903 and had worked at the waterfront ever since. Prior to that, he had served in the British Army. He spent seven years in India and served in the Boer War. He was returning home with his 14-year-old son, Carthage Noonan, when they were caught in the flood. Sadly, Thomas perished that day, but his son was taken to a nearby relief hospital and survived. Thomas Noonan left behind a wife and eight children. James H. Kennelly was described as a valued employee of the city. He had lived in South Boston with his wife and their family for 12 years. He's someone that we don't know a lot about, but it seems like his family had their fair share of tragedy. 
he and his wife had been married for 30 years and during that time had buried four of their nine children. William Duffy was another worker in the area. He had worked for the city of Boston for 21 years and left behind a wife and a daughter. Since this was a very industrial area, there was a large number of both cars and horse-drawn carriages present at the time. Many of the victims were found under large amounts of rubble, and a large number of them were crushed by vehicles that had been swept away. Among them was 17-year-old Eric Laird. He was a driver for the Baxter and Oilfield Express Company and was making a delivery at the time. He was part of a large family and left behind his two parents and seven siblings. He was a former student of the Charleston High School who had quit in order to work full-time recently. Eric was someone who, unlike a lot of victims, wasn't necessarily there all the time. He made deliveries there on occasion, but this is a case of being in the worst place at the wrong time. Speaking of bad timing, Michael Sinnoh had only just returned from his lunch break 20 minutes prior. The force of the flood threw him several feet against a pile of paving stones, causing him to break both of his legs and fracture his skull, among a series of other injuries. The timing of this really couldn't have been worse. It happened when there were a lot of workers present. It's true. If all of this had happened, even just like 20 to 30 minutes earlier, the chances that there would have been less people there just due to the amount of workers out on lunch breaks is pretty high. James Lennon was known to eat lunch at work most days. He was 64 years old and was a foreman with the paving department. The flood caused the building he was eating in to collapse. He was well known throughout Boston and was a member of the Ancient Order of United Workmen and had lived in Roxbury for 25 years. Quite a few of the victims were around the 60-year-old mark. Amongst them was 61-year-old William Brogan. Not a lot is known about him other than that he worked as a teamster. And a teamster is someone who drives a team of horses, usually for the purpose of transporting goods and wagons. Another teamster that lost his life that day was 21-year-old Ralph Martin. He had spent the majority of his life in his hometown of Boston, but had served for a year with the Navy. He was working for a driver for the Blackstone Supply Company. At the time of the flood, he was unloading goods from a wagon. The force of the tank bursting knocked him down and covered him in seconds. This is what I'm talking about when, you know, he probably had his back to it, and then boom, you're surrounded with goo. And that's the thing you need to understand is, like, this didn't crack and, like, pour out. It exploded. Yeah, it just was, like, whoosh. Now the yeah. streets are full of slime, basically. Exactly. Something to consider is how difficult rescue efforts were due to the level of devastation caused by the flood. When we say everything was covered, we mean it. And it makes sense because... I can imagine, like, the narrow Boston streets. Yeah. It would have just channeled it with nowhere to go. It's only going to get higher. So when people say that it was 30 or 40 feet high, I can definitely Absolutely. see that being the case. And if you guys are curious, if you're a visual kind of person, if you look up um, Boston Molasses Disaster map, there's a lot of videos that are, like, short. They're short, but they'll kind of show you how, how it, it traveled. Out. And yes. it's, like, it's fast. And it's a lot. It's a big amount of space. Because of this, not all of the victims were recovered that day. It took days for the body of Flamino Gallerani to be found. He was a 37-year-old driver from Norwood who had worked for Balboni's Boston and Norwood Auto Express. He was reported missing a few days after the disaster. The Boston Globe reported, No word of him has since been learned, but the wrecked truck bears mute testimony of the force of the elements which destroyed it. His body was found 11 days after the flood. And if that wasn't bad enough, 
It took four months for the body of Cesar Niccolo to be located. He was a 32-year-old wagon driver. Something to consider with a tragedy like this is that it's possible that some of the bodies were never recovered. An example of that is 18-year-old Peter Shaughnessy, who is enjoying the first day of his new job as a teamster for the Johnson & Co. Trucking Company. The Globe reported, His horse, covered with molasses, was found yesterday near North End Park, and the wagon was found wrecked. No trace of the young man was ever found. Peter seemed to be very well known and liked. He had earned a good reputation for himself with his previous job as a chauffeur. It's always sad when a family doesn't get closure, like especially from something like this, just to know like he probably died, but we can't give you much well, else. Well, and it talks about, you know, cars being swept into the harbor. So exactly. you wonder, you know, and if you're covered in molasses and then you hit the cold water, it's going to seal you in. Yep you're screwed from the get-go really it makes you wonder how many people passed away that day and were just never found ever again it's true and we're both fully aware that we just went through a huge list of names and information you guys like we said we really wanted to at least talk about them a little bit their names and their stories they, they really should be remembered too absolutely Stephen Polio, who wrote the book dark tide the great boston molasses flood of 1919 said it best in his book no prominent people were killed in the molasses flood and the survivors did not go on to become famous. They were mostly immigrants and city workers who returned to their workday lives, recovered from injuries, and provided for their families. And that's really the reality of it. We talk about it a lot when it comes to murder victims. If a victim doesn't come from a certain socioeconomic background, it's far less likely that they'll be talked about, and we see that here. There's two main questions to look at when it comes to this case. How did this happen? And more importantly, could this have been prevented? We mentioned earlier that the tank itself was poorly built and it's obvious that the lack of craftsmanship and its ability to hold molasses was a huge issue. However, that's not all. A study in 2014 found that the walls of the tank were never actually thick enough to support a full tank of molasses. The design of the rivets was also flawed. Cracks were first formed around the rivet holes because of the stress placed on them. It's said that at the time it was built, this was a known concern. When the tank was built in 1915, it was built in a hurry to meet the demands for molasses because of the First World War. Normally, tanks like this were tested with water ahead of time to ensure that there were no leaks. However, this was not done with this particular tank. The USIA ignored that there were clearly visible cracks forming. The cracks were actually so bad that children were known to gather at the tank with cups in order to collect the molasses for themselves. A 2015 analysis also mentions that a laborer found shards of steel that were broken off from the tank and that he took them to his superiors to be looked at and was told, I don't know what you want me to do. The tank still stands. Along with that, the steel that the actual tank was made from was mixed improperly and not enough manganese was added. This contributed to the metal becoming brittle in colder temperatures. Like we mentioned before, the temperature that day was warmer than previous days. This, along with the fact that the molasses was mixed with molasses that was already sitting there, did not help. This combined with the other factors we've mentioned just caused the tank to give out. The thing is, if it didn't happen that day, it would have happened soon after. This thing seemed to be doomed from the very start. So who do you blame for something like this? Many people blamed Arthur Gell. He was the purity distilling manager who was in charge of overseeing the construction of the tank. 
The issue with that was that he had absolutely no background in engineering. The tank wasn't considered a building, so an engineer was not deemed necessary. It was labeled a structure, so that also meant that no permits were needed from the city of Boston and that inspections weren't necessary either. This case is actually still taught in law school a lot of the time in regards to things like workers' rights and liability law, and it's not hard to see why. Arthur Gell cut corners when it came to safety multiple times. It's hard to say that if it was a lack of knowledge or a tight deadline or possibly even both that caused him to overlook incredibly important things. The tank was supposed to be filled with water ahead of time like we mentioned. However, Arthur decided that filling it six inches would be enough. Which why, did you, why did you even fill it, Arthur? It's a 20 or 2.5 million gallon tank. Yeah, let's, let's put six, six inches. inches and make sure it's enough. Um... To me, like, when I'm driving to work, I drive on the Anthony Hyundai in Edmonton, and I go past, like, the Suncor gas plants, mm -hmm. and you see those massive gas cylinders. Yes. That's pretty much what I'm picturing. That's exactly what I picture, too. And yeah. And so it's like, yeah, six inches is like a splash in the ocean. There's, like, you may as well have not done anything at that point. No, why waste your time, honestly? Yeah, it's a waste of water. Oh, my God. <laughs> When the cracks on the tank became visible, Purity Distilling did not fix them. Instead, they painted over them with brown paint in an attempt to hide the damage. Everyone knew that the cracks were there. The locals, the owners, and the people who should have been responsible for the safety of everyone there. But nothing was done. The number of casualties, along with the number of safety concerns that were ignored, made this a story that was talked about throughout the nation. The residents in the area launched a class action lawsuit against the United States Industrial Alcohol Company, who we're just going to keep calling USIA. Uh, they were the parent company of Purity Distilling. This was the first class action lawsuit in the state, and again, it's still studied to this day. It was argued that building codes did exist, but that bribery was common. If you were able to line the pockets of the right people, the rules just didn't exactly apply to you. Everyone blamed the company for the accident, However, rather than accept the blame and try to make something positive come from this tragedy, they instead chose to find someone else to blame. The Italians, because yeah. what would be a disaster without a little racism? Right, exactly. So the USIA was adamant that the failure of the tank was the result of Italian anarchists and that it was most likely taken out by a bomb. Six years were spent trying to find proof of this, but the search for evidence was fruitless because the accusation, as you probably guessed, was complete bullshit. Instead, it just proved further that USIA was to blame. In 1925, the company was fined $1 million, which is about $7 million in today's money. And that wasn't something that had ever really happened before. In fact, the business world was quite shocked at the result of all of this. This led to worker safety and regulation being taken more seriously due to the fact that now companies saw that there were real consequences and that they would be held liable when their negligence resulted in the death of a worker. This is something that would spread throughout the nation. While things didn't get completely better and there was still a long way to go, this was the start of a new era in regards to workers' rights. So, I mean, at least something positive came of all of this. Which doesn't really help make it any less frustrating because this just really shouldn't have ever happened in the first place. Absolutely not. The tank was never rebuilt, which clearly that's for the best. The property it stood on became a yard for the Boston Elevated Railway. It's now the site of a city-owned recreational park named Langan Park. The site has a Little League baseball field and a playground amongst other family-friendly activities. 
Nearby at Pupolo Park, a small plaque can be found commemorating the disaster. There's also a number of luxury apartment buildings nearby. The area itself actually looks quite beautiful if you do look it up. Boston is on my list of places to visit for so many different reasons, and this area is absolutely one of them because it would be interesting to see it from like a historical standpoint, but it's honestly just beautiful. Like we, I love places near yes. the water. We don't have anything like that here. No, I, my parents have been to Boston and they actually said it's one of their favorite places that they visited in the States. I would love to visit at Boston and like New England and absolutely. Salem and oh all my of that. God. So much like rich history and like not to mention just all the fun ghost stories and all that good stuff. We're, we're going to have to add that to like the grim curriculum yes. field trip list. Absolutely. The 100th anniversary of the disaster was in 2019, and a ceremony was held in memory of those lost that day. They used radar to find the exact spot of the tank, which is actually where the baseball diamond now stands. The concrete base remains buried under it. During the ceremony, attendees stood in a circle while the names of the victims were read out loud. The story of the Boston molasses disaster lives on in the area. Many say that the smell of molasses lingered in the area for years. Some say even decades, and I believe it. I mean, imagine in the summer when everything warmed back up again. If there was any residue left anywhere, I feel like the smell would just bring up a whole lot of traumatic memories for people. That must have just been terrible, though, because smell is so closely associated yeah. with memory. Well, even think about, like, you'll catch a smell and you'll be like, oh my god, I'm straight back to kindergarten. Like, Oh, absolutely. If I smell, like, Play-Doh or anything like that, it's Your like, child boom, again. straight back. I, I honestly, I really like this story, you guys, a lot. It's horrifying. It changes history in its own way in regards to the law. But most importantly, I just don't think it gets the credit it deserves. Again, so many people hear this and know of it by name, but don't know the details that make it so horrible. I think it's the unexpectedness of it all. You know, people going about their regular daily lives would never, ever have imagined something like this happening. It makes me think of... Um, like a volcanic eruption. Yeah. But even people that live in proximity to volcanoes know that there's that possibility that it can blow. The people of Boston could never have expected. Not at all. I wanted to make sure when I was researching and writing this that I was able to find not only the victim details for the reasons we talked about earlier, but the details that make this so scary. Because the idea of drowning, because there is molasses in your lungs and your nostrils as you basically sink into a quicksand-like substance is straight up nightmare fuel for me. When I first started looking into this, I heard about it referred to as the Boston Molassacre. Which, which I lost my shit. I thought that was really funny. I'm not going to lie. I'm sorry. But like, I don't care what you call it. This is awful. We originally kind of thought of this as somewhat of a palate cleanser episode because of how rough next week is going to be, but I don't know that we actually achieved palate cleanser levels of, like, joy. No, we did quite the opposite here. But sorry, guys. Yeah, sorry, not sorry. But I think we learned a lot, and that's what's important. Yeah, absolutely. Don't fuck around with molasses. No, safety is important. Absolutely. This is why OH&S exists to exactly. this day. Exactly. Like we said, next week is going to be rough. If you take one word away from it, 
cannibal. Speaking of, if you ever want to know ahead of time what we're covering, our Patreon always gets a sneak peek, and that is a perk that's available to all tiers. Of course, and that means you should check out our Patreon. We have a lot of fun over there. The Discord has been a blast, and we're loving the the behind-the-scenes videos, and we can't wait for the movie nights. And super cool, super exciting, we officially have 10 patrons. That's double digits, and uh, thank you to all 10 of you. You guys are awesome. You guys are the bomb.com. We also have a grim VIP tier, and we want to take a second to thank everyone on there. So big thank you to Brian, Hillary, Lisa, Mayhem, Mudkip, and Pink Flamingo 20. You guys rock. And for the record, that is patreon.com slash the grim curriculum. We also have merch on the way, and it's so close. We can almost taste it. No, no, we do not recommend eating our merch. Yeah, I mean, you could. You buy more. Yeah, if you eat the merch, you have to buy more, so. Yeah, Yeah. and if you're going to eat the merch, can you record it? Yes, please. Content. Until then, make sure you don't miss out on the Grim Curriculum news by following us on Instagram at The Grim Curriculum and Grim Curriculum on Twitter. We are also on TikTok and Facebook, so look us up. We're also available on all the podcast platforms except Apple Music. If you listen to us on Spotify, please, please, please give us a five-star rating because that helps us a lot and that's how new people find us. You can also find the two of us on social media. We're going to link our uh, personal socials below along with some other fun links so you can just click and it'll take you right to us. Thank you so much for listening. This has been The The Grim Grim Curriculum. Curriculum. Also, fun fact for you guys who are still listening because you're the titty city. Electric chair was actually invented by a dentist, and chainsaws were invented to help with childbirth. You're wow. Wel- you're welcome. <laughs>